Well, good morning, everyone. God's blessings to all of you. I hope that you're, uh, well, I hope that you've experienced our Lord Jesus in his presence this morning. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Slade Reinhardt. I'm the director of Connect and Grow Ministries here at Fellowship Bible Church. This morning, I'm going to continue in our sermon, sermon series on uh, 2 Peter. We'll be in the third message on that one, so you can go ahead and turn to 2 Peter 2 if you want. I'm going to be reading the whole chapter, so take a deep breath and buckle up. It's kind of lengthy. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deception while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed after the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who also loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved." For, speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment 
delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Amen. Well, in April 1912, a man by the name of Cyril Evans was a telegraph operator on the SS Californian, which was a ship that was making a voyage across the Atlantic. On the night of April 14th, the ship came to a halt as it entered a wide ice field because they saw that there were a lot of large icebergs ahead, and the captain ordered Cyril to get on the telegraph and warn any other ships in the area about this ice field and the icebergs. So Evans went about doing just that. Well, meanwhile, in the telegraph room aboard the Titanic, telegraph operators were feverishly working to get through a backlog of private messages that they were sending to the United States, because that's where the the ship was headed, when one of the telegraph operators received Evans' message. Because the Californian was so near to the Titanic, his signal came in very loud and hot, and it irritated and annoyed the operator on the Titanic, so he then signaled back to Evans, shut up and get off the line. And, more importantly, he did not then pass that message on to either the bridge or the ship's captain. Short time later, of course, the Titanic did enter that ice field that Evans was trying to warn them about, struck an iceberg, and sank with the loss of over 1,500 people. Now, we don't know if it would have made a difference if the operator on the Titanic had warned the captain, because they actually did have people on the lookout for icebergs up on deck. But we do know for sure that this man ignored a dire and serious warning about impending danger. Now, 2 Peter 2, as you just heard, is a dire, urgent, important warning that we cannot afford because it is a message from our Lord and Savior to warn us about impending danger and, the, uh, and, and to protect us from that danger. Now, as you probably noticed, there, well, for one thing, it's obviously a very long passage to try to squeeze in on a Sunday morning, uh, so... Uh, there are a number of verses that you'll see that are unclear, that are really strange, honestly just downright baffling, and that's not just uh, you and I that are experiencing that. Down through the centuries, scholars and commentators have been baffled about them as well. So uh, the reason I'm bringing that up is if you see something in this passage that I do not touch upon and you're curious about it or you know, still baffled about it, then I'll just encourage you to look into that on your own. Uh, a good resource is a website called biblehub.com. Biblehub.com, there's uh, lots of commentaries available on that, as well as lots of different versions of the Bible. You could also consult a uh, good study Bible or a commentary to look into it. Uh, so today's passage, before I get into the passage proper, I do want to bring out a couple of things. There are two very important but hard concepts that this passage highlights and I don't mean hard in the sense that it's necessarily difficult to understand these concepts, but hard in the sense that it can be emotionally difficult to process or accept, especially in our day and age. One of these concepts is the concept of the wrath of God. God hates sin, and he doesn't just hate sin because of what it does to people, although he does hate what sin does to people. But more fundamentally, God hates sin because it is contrary to his holiness, for instance, in Romans 1, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Now, God's wrath in verse 1, what he, excuse me, in Romans chapter 1 that I just quoted from, God's wrath there was ignited by men who were not honoring him as God, men who were not giving him thanks for what he had provided, and men who were robbing him of the glory that he deserved and instead giving it to man-made things. God is infinitely holy, and because of that, he is zealous for his own glory. Sin contradicts the holiness of God, and it robs him of the glory and the praise that he deserves. So because God is holy, and because God is consistent, because God never wavers or changes in that holiness, he is a God of wrath against everything that is unholy. One question that might bring to your mind is, how does this idea of God's wrath fit with this other biblical concept that's very prevalent, that God is love, as it says directly in 1 John, God is love. Well, it fits. The reason we sometimes think it doesn't fit is because our understanding of love is so often uh, very emotionally based and culturally bound. God, his wrath is actually a response of love. It is a response of his love for his own glory, of his love for what is holy and righteous, and of his love for justice. You and I, of course, deserve God's wrath because we are unholy, because we do not give him thanks as we should, because we have not honored him as we should, because all of us prior to our salvation in Christ were worshipers of man-made things and other idols. But, praise God, in his mercy, he provided his son to take the punishment that we deserved and to give us life and forgiveness and rescue us from that wrath. Now, the second concept that I want to mention that this passage highlights is the idea of a dividing line. And what I mean is that there is a dividing line between false doctrine and true doctrine. There is a dividing line between orthodoxy and heresy. And I'm talking about a dividing line on first-level doctrines. Uh, For instance, I'm not talking about a secondary matter like uh, a person, for instance, the church I, I grew up in, teaches that the Holy Spirit still gives to people the gift of miracles. Okay, if you agree with that or if you disagree with that, you are not a heretic on either side. That's not a first-level doctrine that defines heresy. Heresy is drawn on the major doctrines, the triune God who created the universe, the fall and depravity of man, the person and work of Christ, the, the main and plain doctrines of the Scripture. Okay, so uh, with that background, let's go ahead and get into the passage. The first thing that Peter tells us is that false teachers are among us. Among us. If any of you, I was hoping I'd get a little bit of a reaction there. For those of you who don't know, the, uh, there is this very popular game right now called Among Us that I was not referring to in this point. However, interestingly, it does tie in because in Among Us, you're part of a group of people who are trying to accomplish a mission, and one person in the group is an imposter, and they are there actually to cause havoc and to destroy you. So uh, similarly to the false prophets there, there's an imposter. It looks like the rest of us, but it isn't real. Anyway, uh, false teachers are among us. I just wanted to prove that I'm culturally hip So 
Whenever somebody confesses that Jesus is Lord, Savior, uh, of uh, their Lord and Savior, it is our tendency to receive them as a brother or sister in Christ. And that is right and proper. We should. If someone professes that Christ is Lord, we should welcome them as a brother or sister in Christ. But Peter is giving us a warning because he wants us to know that sometimes someone professing to be a brother and sister in Christ is actually a false teacher. So therefore, we need to be on our guard against false teachers within the visible church. He's not talking about uh, the challenge of Hinduism or the challenge of Buddhism or the challenge of, of uh, Islam. He's talking about false teaching that is rising up within the church, teachers that would claim to be followers of Christ. So let's look again at verses 1 through 3. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing destruction upon themselves, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Y'all didn't hear a loud swallow, did you? Okay, we're safe. Now, notice that Peter's warning as it begins, he said, it's in the future tense. He says that false teachers will be among you. So from that statement, I take it that these particular churches that Peter was sending this letter to <clears throat> had not yet experienced false teachers rising up within their midst. But Peter knew that false teachers always rise up within the people of God. That is how the devil works. He attacks the church from outside. He attacks the church from inside. Verse 1 begins by bringing up the general example of false prophets in the Old Testament. Now, you'll recall at the end of chapter 1, Peter said that we should pay attention to the prophetic word as to a lamp shining in a dark place. And he was referring specifically to the Old Testament scriptures. So now he's pointing back to those Old Testament scriptures again to say that, that prophetic word told us that false prophets rose up among the people of God. There were men who claimed to speak for Yahweh, men who would say, yes, he is the one true God and there is none beside him, but in fact, they were speaking lies from their own heart. For instance, in 1 Kings chapter 22, a prophet named Zedekiah prophesied to King Ahab that he would defeat the Syrians in this battle he was about to engage in, and uh, you know God would give him victory. And as it turns out, uh, he did not defeat the Syrians, and he was killed that day, which was the true prophecy that the true prophet had given. Zedekiah was a man who claimed to be a prophet of God, but in fact, he was just speaking lies from his own heart for his own advantage. The same thing happens within the church. People claiming to speak for God, people that would say, yes, Jesus is the Lord and Savior. There is none, behind, none beside him. Yes, there is one true God who is triune in nature. Yes, we are saved by faith through grace. But in fact, they teach lies out of their own dark hearts. Now, as you uh, will probably remember as well, false teaching actually arose within the church almost immediately after it began. In the book of Acts, we see that there were a group of people who were saved, that had been Jews, that were saved, and then they began teaching Gentile believers that they had to be circumcised according to the custom of Moses in order to be saved. And the book of Acts details how the Spirit led the church to reject that false teaching, even though it would crop up from time to time, uh, and they'd have to face it again. But the point being that even right at the beginning, the, the mother church in Jerusalem, false teaching 
arose within there. So Peter knew that it was going to happen. If it hadn't happened yet to these churches, it was going to happen. There will be false teachers among you, and they will bring in destructive heresies. And notice that he says they will secretly bring in destructive heresies. They don't openly reject the truth of Christ. Instead, they claim to believe the truth of Christ while they distort it in their teaching. Now, I think what commonly happens is that you have people who are part of a church visibly but have never trusted in Christ. And then over time, the devil, in cooperation with their sin nature, tempts them to believe lies about God and then ultimately to spread those lies to other people. But they don't spread their lies by overtly opposing Scripture. In fact, false teachers within the church do quote Scripture. They use Scripture to back up their devilish, devilish doctrines. I mean, think about this. How many Bible-believing churches would accept someone as a teacher or preacher in their congregation if they denied that Jesus was Lord, if they denied that salvation is by, by faith, if they denied that God is triune or that the Scriptures are God-breathed? Uh, now, I will grant you more than should probably do that, but by and large, a Bible-believing church would reject such a person. They would not get a chance to get a foot in the door. What they do is present themselves as being orthodox, following the teaching of the Old Testament, following the teaching of the apostles, but they have a hidden agenda. They intend to bring in alien doctrine, doctrine that is alien to the pure truth of Christ that does not follow the Old Testament scriptures and does not follow the teaching of the apostles. And in addition to bringing in these destructive heresies, it says that these people even deny the master who bought them. They live in opposition to the lordship of Jesus Christ, denying his right to rule over them. In fact, as you're going to see throughout this chapter, this is really the main way that Peter is pointing to to spot a false teacher. Look at the way they live. Look at the way they conduct their lives. Are they rejecting the lordship of Christ? Are they living in open rebellion against his commands? Then that person is not to be followed. The result of their influence is that they lead others into immorality. Now, he specifically mentions that others will follow them in their sensuality. And that term usually refers to sexual immorality because that is, of course, the most intense sense, you might say, that we experience. But really, I think it would apply to also the sensuality of just living for, the, uh, living for good times, living for pleasure, uh, greed, abundance of, of things, that kind of thing. And uh, the result is, when people follow them in this sensuality, that the way of Christ is then blasphemed. So in other words, the witness, you might say, to the outside world that these people are giving distorts who Jesus is. And so the unbelievers look at people living like that and think that, that Jesus, he doesn't really seem to make any difference. These people live just like I do. Or that Jesus is just a hypocrite because look at these people who claim to be his followers. Verse 3 describes how these false teachers gain power as well as wealth. It says, in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Now, to me, that verse sounds exact, exactly like one of the most prevalent false teachings that is running through the church today and has been for probably a half century or better. And what I'm referring to there is what is known as the prosperity gospel or prosperity theology. It's the teaching that God's will for all believers in this life is to be completely healthy and financially prosperous. They teach that your faith and your obedience determine God's blessings in your life. 
and that God is obligated to bless you financially and to heal you physically if you have enough faith or if you give enough money. It's a destructive heresy that leads millions astray, and it's a devilish and ungodly. I'm sure you've probably seen them on television programs asking people to send them money and enticing them with the leverage that if you send money, then God will do this for you. Is your marriage failing? Send my ministry $100 and God will heal your marriage. Does your child have cancer? Send me $200 and God will heal your child. It is, uh, I mean, honestly, they're just not words uh, strong enough to express how evil and ungodly that is. And over against that, though, if we look at the Old Testament scriptures as well as the teachings of the apostles, we are taught that believers will suffer in this life. We will go through difficult times, and we are not guaranteed complete health, nor are we guaranteed financial prosperity. In fact, God is not obligated to give anyone anything, much less financial prosperity or complete health. Those things are promised in the next life, but not in this life. Verse 3 goes on to underscore the truth that these false teachers will be condemned and destroyed, which is their ultimate end. However, I will add this, that does not mean that there is no hope for someone who is a false teacher. You'll remember back in the book of Jonah when he was sent to Nineveh, <clears throat> he was sent to Nineveh, his message was, in 40 days Nineveh will be destroyed. There were no provisions for changing that. That was purely the message. But in fact, you might say encoded within that message, behind it, I won't say encoded, uh, God wasn't sending a secret message there. Behind that message was the idea that if they turned, then God would relent, and that is exactly what happened. Nineveh repented of their sin, cried out to God for mercy, and he had mercy. So in the same way, when, when Peter is saying their destruction is certain and, and their condemnation is not idle, those kind of things, that is true if these men or women do not repent. But if they repent, Christ stands ready, of course, to forgive and cleanse and, and bring them close to himself. So false teachers are among us. That's the first thing we need to know from this passage. The next section of the passage teaches that God will destroy false teachers, but rescue the godly. Now this section is just an extended compound if-then statement. Peter says, if, 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 then, sets up all these examples and then gives his conclusion. He gives three Old Testament examples of when God destroyed the ungodly. And then he also gives a couple of Old Testament examples of when God rescued his people. So look with me at verses 4 through 8 once again. He says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Uh, before I talk about this a little bit, this, uh, the, the last couple verses there, 7 and 8, are an example of verses that I would love to delve into but don't, won't have time to. But I, I think all of us that are familiar with the Old Testament, when we see those two words put together, righteous and lot, we're like, what? 
What do you mean by that creep, that coward, Lot? Uh, let me just touch on this, though. I will say, how could Lot be righteous? He could be righteous the same way that I, Abraham was righteous. The Bible says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So I assume from Peter's statement here that Lot believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Okay, so uh, the first example of punishment is the angels who rebelled against God. I can't say for sure what particular incident that uh, Peter is referring to here. We think it may be the initial rebellion when uh, the devil called the dragon in Revelation 12 led a group of angels to rebel against God's authority and were, were thrust out of heaven. Uh, apparently, when that happened, some of those angels were not free to just roam about and torment us as they're doing today, but some of them were actually chained to be reserved for judgment. The second example is from the pre-flood world, antediluvian, for those of you who like big words. The people that were living right before God brought the flood had degenerated into a state of total wickedness. God said, these people are just thinking about evil all the time. They're, the earth was filled with violence, and so it incited God's wrath against that, and he determined, therefore, to bring his judgment uh, while saving Noah out of that. And then the third example he gives is Sodom and Gomorrah, which, again, is an example of two cities who, whose wickedness had, had saturated beyond the point where God decided, okay, they can no longer be on this earth. Uh, he told that to Abraham, I believe it was uh, Genesis 15 or somewhere thereabouts. <clears throat> Sodom and Gomorrah were filled with sexual immorality and wickedness, homosexuality, rebellion, violence, greed, all of that, and God said, okay, I'm, I'm going to wipe them off the earth, and so they were completely destroyed. But in the midst of that, uh, Peter points to those two places where God rescued his people. So there was Noah and his family who were rescued when he brought the flood, and then there was Lot and would have been his wife and daughters, but his, his wife... Uh, chose to stop, and she was caught up in that same destruction. But the, the point is that uh, God rescued his people from destruction, but he brought destruction on those who rebelled against him. So then let's get to the then statement. So if this is true, if God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, if God, uh, Gomorrah, if God punished these angels, if God destroyed the pre-flood world, if God rescued Noah, if God rescued Lot, then what? Look at verses 9 and 10. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the righteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So you need to know that these teachers will be punished, Peter's saying. They will not escape the wrath of God that they earn due to their rebellion against him and their attack on God's people Just as God punished those who rebelled against him in the Old Testament, he's saying he's going to do the same thing in this age. And you need to know that those who belong to the Lord, those who truly have trusted in Christ and been adopted into his family, they will be rescued. They will not be swept up in the destruction that these false teachers have earned. So after surveying this Old Testament evidence of God's actions toward both the godly and wicked, Peter then begins an amazing rant where he describes the character and actions of these false teachers in more detail, basically saying false teachers are ungodly and deceptive. They're ungodly and deceptive. One of the marks of a false teacher, 
from 2 Peter chapter 2 is an ungodly life, a life lived in open rebellion against Jesus Christ. Their character is openly, openly and obviously unchristlike. So look at the terms that he uses about their character and lifestyle. It just it feels like this avalanche of, of criticism and condemnation that Peter is pouring out because he wants us to be absolutely certain that these people are horrible, ungodly people. They are not to be trusted. They are not to be tolerated. He mentions things like bold, willful, irrational animals, blots, blemishes, so on and so forth. I do want to focus in on a couple of those, I guess, to give you the feel of uh, what Peter's saying. He mentions that they are bold and willful, and what he's, he means bold in the sense of arrogant and self-willed. They aren't bold for the truth. They're not bold to stand up for Christ. They're bold or audacious to get their own way. They're bold in order to gain power for themselves. They're bold to exalt themselves and to exploit others. It also says they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. False teachers in their rejection of Christ's authority yield to their sinful urges, living in sexual immorality and always looking for more opportunity for sinful pleasures. They desire to manipulate you. They desire to exploit you. In other words, they want your allegiance to give them power and they want your money to make them wealthy. And in case you have any doubt about the good intentions that these false prophets has, Peter says, I want you to see the devilish purposes that are behind these people's actions. They are wanting to deceive you. They want to lead you away from Christ in order to enrich and empower themselves. Peter calls them waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. A waterless spring refers to a place in the desert that a traveler might happen upon that would have greenery around it so it would make a traveler think, oh, there is a spring there to provide water. And then when they arrived, they would find that it was actually dry. So it was deceptively, no, so it was deceptive. Uh, mist driven by a storm has the same idea. Think of a thirsty land, desperately in need of rain, and a storm comes off in the distance and begins approaching. And you think, oh boy, we're going to get rain. And then it just blows through with a light mist, completely unsatisfying and unhelpful. That's what these false teachers are like. They look like they'll provide spiritual water. They look like they're going to give you the living water of Christ, but they will not. They look like someone you could go to for spiritual health, but in fact, they're a mirage. Instead of leading others to the spiritual, refresh, excuse me, spiritual refreshment found in Christ, they lead others to follow themselves toward the path of emptiness and destruction. And the Bible says that the Lord has reserved the gloom of utter darkness for them. In other words, they will be punished for their deception in hell. Peter also points out that these false teachers promise freedom, but in fact they're enslaved to corruption so that all they can offer is slavery. Sin is running rampant in their lives because they do not go to the only source of deliverance and freedom, the Lord Jesus Christ. They have rejected him so they have nothing to help them fight against the sinful urges in their hearts. They outwardly claim to know Christ, but their teaching and lifestyle show that to be a lie. Since they haven't been set free from the bondage of sin, they can't offer freedom to anyone else. They can only lead others to join them in their bondage. Now, I want you to pay close attention to what the Spirit is telling us in this passage. He is saying that a person who is living in open rebellion against Christ cannot be trusted to teach truth. 
Now, it's true that you can be a backsliding Christian who has fallen into sin, whom the Lord will eventually discipline and bring back again, and you're not teaching false doctrine. That can happen. But you cannot live in open rebellion against God and be trusted to teach true doctrine. You cannot lead others toward Christ if you are actively running as hard as you can away from him. After this awful description of the motivation and the uh, character of these false teachers, Peter makes a horrible conclusion. False teachers will have a greater punishment. False teachers will have a greater punishment. Now, these three verses down through the ages have caused believers a lot of fear and trouble, and I count myself among those as well, because it sounds like it sounds like Peter is saying that someone who has come to know Jesus Christ, someone who has been saved, someone who has been washed in the blood of Christ, forgiven, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, can ultimately turn away from that and finally be lost and condemned to hell. And that is a horribly frightening thought. So let's dig into this a little more deeply. First, let's read uh, verses 20 to 22 again. For if after they have escaped... The defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. <laughs> My tea splashed on me. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Now, I think it's clear that verse 20 is talking about the false teachers, and that it's saying that their ultimate fate is worse than if they had not known about Christ. Peter says that these men escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that is actually the same word, knowledge, the same word that he used in chapter 1 when he said that uh, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. So it sounds like, again, Peter is saying these people are true believers, but ultimately they will be condemned. It sounds like these are people that were transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light that then went back to the kingdom of darkness. So is Peter saying that a true believer can ultimately and finally be lost? Praise God, no, he is not saying that. Amen. No, uh, I'll explain further. The, uh, well, as soon as I find my place. There we go, Okay. So he mentions that these men are going to end up in the, the gloom of utter darkness, meaning hell. They're going to end up in hell. And he says that they escape the defilements of the world through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We have to interpret Scripture with Scripture. And one of the principles that you use based on that is that you look at passages that are more clear to interpret, pa interpret passages that are unclear. So uh, let's think for a second about a few other passages. 1 Peter chapter 1 says that those who have been born again have an eternal inheritance waiting for them and that they are being guarded by God's power until that time that they experience that full and final salvation. And in John chapter 10, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish 
and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So in light of these categorical statements that are very clear, that a believer in Christ, someone who is taken from the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of Christ, is eternally safe in union with Christ. In light of that, I think we have to conclude that Peter is not saying that these false teachers are true believers. Verse 22 actually uh, confirms that because he refers to two animals doing what they do by nature. This disgusting example of a dog who vomits and then walks back to the vomit to either sniff it or other things I won't go into. Uh, Or a pig, you can wash this pig, but as soon as it gets the opportunity, it's going to go back to wallowing in the filthy mud that it enjoys so much. I think Peter is saying that these people joined themselves to the church, and so they, they escaped from the defilements of the world by being part of a body of believers, right? So now you're in a community of people who are pursuing righteousness, who are doing their best to live by the commands of God. So you're no longer in the context of this ungodly culture. You're now uh, stepped into this godly culture. So to a degree, your life gets reformed. You, you escape from some of those defilements. But eventually, because they do not put their faith in Christ, eventually they slip back into it and they're overcome by it again. Since they never believed in Christ, they eventually return to being dominated and characterized by sin, just like the dog returning to its vomit or the sow returning to its mire. As a matter of fact, uh, Jesus used those same terms, dog and pig, to refer to unbelievers in Matthew chapter 7. So I I do think that that's uh, what Peter is saying. Now, since he adds that the last state for them is worse than the first, I think he is saying that their punishment in hell is going to be more painful, more intense, a worse punishment for having known the way of Christ. In other words, it is better to have never heard of Christ than to have heard of him and then reject him. And in this case, people who are even actively working to pervert his message. Now, all of those points in this passage are somewhat heavy. There's false teachers among us. God's going to destroy the false teachers. They're going to receive greater punishment. They're deceptive and ungodly. So I wanted to finish with a point kind of in response to this warning that God has provided safeguards to protect his people from false teachers. The purpose of a warning is to change someone's attitude or actions. And one of the questions that comes to my mind as I'm reading this is, what, what does it mean for us to, to hear this warning? What is, what is Peter expecting us to do in response? So let's think about that for a second. Let's suppose you're driving on I-20, and it's winter time, and you see a sign that says, Icy Roads Up Ahead. What should you do? Now, I recognize that many drivers in our state do nothing And that's why uh, in every bad weather situation, you find lots of cars in ditches (laughs) on I-20. But what you should do is reduce your speed and focus more intently on the road ahead of you as well as the cars around you. You should take some action based upon this warning that you've been given. Now, the Holy Spirit is warning us, the church, that there are people that will rise up within our ranks claiming to be fellow believers that will teach false doctrine and try to lead others to follow them into immorality and ungodliness. We should respond by taking some precautions. We should respond by utilizing safeguards that God has given us 
to protect us. So let's look at a few of those. One of those, the primary one, really is Scripture. In Peter one, uh, excuse me, in chapter one, Peter said we should do we would do well to pay attention to Scripture as to a light shining in a dark place. So we pay attention to get God's light, which helps to protect us from false teachers. It protects us from deception. It enables us to protect others from deception. The primary guard against false teachers is the true knowledge of Christ and his scriptures. You've probably heard the illustration before. I don't even know if it's true, but it's a cool illustration (laughs) that when the uh, Secret Service is training people to spot counterfeit money, what they have them do is study the original, the actual authentic bill very closely so that when something is different, they'll be able to spot it because counterfeits come in an infinite variety. Well, it's the same way with false teaching. False teachings come in an infinite variety. So your main safeguard against false teaching is learning the genuine and true doctrine of Christ. It's the, only, uh, the Scripture is the only infallible authoritative source of revelation that we have that, gives us, uh, that tells us who God is and what He's done. So Scripture tells us what is true doctrine, what is healthy doctrine, and enables us to recognize what is false and ungodly doctrine. A second safeguard is prayer. Pray for the Spirit of God to give you understanding of the Scripture that He inspired. Pray for the Spirit of God to give you discernment to recognize false from true doctrine. Because sometimes false teaching comes in a very, very subtle form. It may not even be that the person bringing it has necessarily taken a false step, but because they are not quite in line with Scripture, it eventually leads to a path of open rebellion. Ask the Lord to protect you and your church family from false teachers. Another safeguard that God has provided is the church, the local body itself. When you belong to a sincere Jesus-loving church, you have a community around you to help you to avoid false teaching. Verse 14 said that false teachers entice unsteady souls. You know, when uh, lions are attacking a herd of animals, let's say wildebeests because that's fun to say, What they will look for are the weak or the sick ones because they're easier to run down and and overtake. And it's the same way with false teachers. They're they're going after the people that are a little bit immature or unsteady in their faith. Or maybe the people who have, because of a difficult uh, circumstance or trial, are just beaten down and so their faith is not vibrant and strong right now. If you remain connected to a local body of believers, then you will have brothers and sisters around you to help support you during those times when you're unsteady or to help support you as you're growing from immaturity to maturity. Two ways I'll go ahead and suggest that you can do that here at Fellowship Bible Church, that you can become very connected to this body of Christ, our life groups and small groups. Uh, You heard that promoted in the... uh, announcements just a few minutes ago. Life groups are our adult classes that happen at 9 o'clock every Sunday morning. It's obviously a smaller venue than this, so you have more opportunity for interaction, to ask questions, to get a deeper understanding of what may trouble you or questions that you may have. Small groups give you the chance to get to know people a lot better because none of us are going to be best friends with all uh, over 100 people in here. But if you're with a group of, say, 10 to 15 other people, you can really get to know them well, and they can walk through life with you, helping to support you when you're weak, or excuse me, when your faith is weak, when you're going through a trial, help to guard you against false teaching. And the last one I'll mention, uh, which may raise some eyebrows, is church history. Something that I discovered when I had to read church history a number of years ago 
is that it, it gives you a broad knowledge of what false teachings have cropped up in the 20th, 20 centuries that the church has existed. You'll also be able to see how the Spirit led the church to deal with those teachings, how they were able to expose them. And you'll be better prepared for what false teachings come in the future because, as our dear friend Solomon says, there's nothing new under the sun. Almost every false teaching that pops up is going to be a form of a previous one that has already come about. So my exhortation to you guys this morning is to commit to these safeguards that the Father has graciously provided for us. Not only will you be protected against false teaching, but you'll be able to protect others against false teaching. And ultimately, even more important than that, because the, the protection is kind of a safeguard, you'll grow in your knowledge and relationship with Jesus Christ. Because as your focus is on Christ, when a man comes along that is tempting you to draw him away, draw you away after himself, you're not going to fall for it. Because your focus is on Christ. You're not following a man anyway. Your hope, your contentment, your life, your faith is all bound up in Jesus Christ. Beware of false teachers is the warning that Peter gives us today. They lead you away from Christ. A false teacher can look very attractive. They can be gracious in their voice, in their manner, in their looks. They may look like they're fabulous, fabulously successful in their ministry, but Peter is telling us that ultimately they will be doomed, that they are not making a mark for the kingdom of Christ, but instead they're battling against the flock of God. So be on your guard. 1 John 4, 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. Lean on the safeguards that our Father has provided for your protection, and most of all, cling tightly to Jesus Christ, our all-sufficient Savior. Let's stand and thank the Lord for this word. As I go to the Lord in prayer, I'll ask the prayer team to come forward. And if any of you have a need that you would like prayer about, if you want to just talk to someone, you need some encouragement or help in some way, all the people in front of this stage would be happy to do that with you. Let's go to the Lord. Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, the unfailing King of kings and Lord of lords, I thank you for this word of warning. Lord, it, it feels a little bit heavy and uncomfortable to think about the fact that the Christian life is not just these happy and glorious things, but we do have to be aware of the enemy. We have to be aware of the attacks on our trust in you and, and the attempts of the devil to draw us away from you. So, Lord, I pray for Fellowship Bible Church. All those that are gathered here this morning, everyone that is watching online, I pray that you would protect them in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord, if there are any in here who are thinking, you know, I don't know that I really believe Jesus. I, I guess I've just been part of a church for years and figured it was the right thing to do. I try to live a moral life and do my best, but I don't know that I've ever trusted him. God, I pray that you would convince them that outside of Christ, they stand condemned, that they are living under the wrath of God but that you have provided your son to take that wrath, to give them life, forgiveness, and union with himself. God, I pray that your spirit will bring salvation to those who don't know you this morning. God, bless your people with a special measure of grace. Display your presence in their lives this week. Amen.